Thank you. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, we are in our second message of the series, Fight the Good Fight. And uh, sometimes you just need a sort of a, a, a re, re-energizer, a reminder, a rehashing of in many of these scriptures I'll be sharing over the next few weeks won't be uh, new ones for many of you. But sometimes it's good to have a reminder of the old ones so that they can be fresh in our lives and fresh in our experience of life. And so with that, why don't we go ahead and just pray now that God would open our hearts to receive the word. Heavenly Father, as we open up the word of God, as we talk about the word of God, Lord, even just this one verse, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us and that we would be transformed and renewed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About 150 years ago, there was a man who was on death row. His name was George Wilson. And uh, you've probably heard me tell this story before because he's one of the most puzzling men you'll ever find in American history. George Wilson was a bad man. He was a career criminal. Uh, He eventually confessed to homicides and thefts and robberies. Uh, Just a very brutal man. And the thing that got him caught, that got him in trouble with the law, was that he maimed a mailman. And of course, you know, uh, if you attack a mailman, it is what? It is a federal offense, yeah. And so back in those days, the federal laws were far more harsh, or I shouldn't say harsh, but the federal justice system was, um, was, you know, was a capital crime. And so George Wilson was sentenced uh, to death, death by hanging. But uh, just before he was about to be executed, uh, the president of the United States pardoned and commuted his sentence. And so they gave him an official pardon. But here's the one thing you have to do with a pardon. You have to sign that pardon to say that you receive the pardon and they'll set you free. So they went into George Wilson's room and they presented him with the papers and he did the one thing that nobody else in American history has ever done before. He pushed the pardon back, and he said, I don't want it. I refuse the pardon. So the war officer went back to the judge, who went back to the judge, and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. What do we do with someone who refuses a pardon? Do we still execute him? And they're debating this, and they're debating this until finally... It was one of the chief justices of the United States finally laid down this ruling. If a man refuses a pardon, then his original sentence is still active and must be carried out. And sadly, or maybe with a sense of justice, you might say, George Wilson was executed. But he didn't have to be. All he had to do was accept the pardon, and he could have gone free. But for reasons known to history and unknown to us, George Wilson refused the pardon. Many times I can see us as followers of Jesus live under the same mindset where we can refuse the pardon I mean, in our hearts and our minds, we know we accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but living that out is an entirely different matter. In fact, I hear, I hear lots of statements like this. Pastor Tom, I live under the constant thought 
that I am a disappointment to God. You ever feel that way? In fact, I've actually met few people who feel the other way, right? It's very rare that I hear someone say, man, Pastor Tom, God is glad he got me. Oh my goodness, you know? God got a really good deal when he saved my life. (laughs) I exceed his expectations daily, you know? I bet he's even got a special place in heaven just for people like me, you know? I just don't hear that. In fact, most of the people I talk to, when they're truly honest, they see things like this. Tom, I'm continually being tested. I'm continually being tested. And it's true, we are. Nothing I can do about that. In fact, people will also say, and Tom, I feel like I have always failed his tests. Well, you may feel that way. But the fact is, it's probably not true. In fact, you may have passed more of them than you probably are aware of. It's kind of like when you get a report card, right? You may get seven A's and one D, but what's the grade you focus on? The one D, right? You know? And all of a sudden, that D is what comes to define you. Not the seven A's, but the one D. Now, this may, you know, uh, this is all fine and dandy but the fact of the matter is is we can all thank god there are no report cards in heaven amen (laughs) but the third one i get and this is really the basis of the message setting it up today is tom i feel like i'm a constant disappointment to god i i know god loves me but it's almost like oh that's too bad you know too bad tom you're such a such a disappointment we could have had such a better life you know and Oh, well, I still love you. You can still come on up. You can still get in, but, oh, that's just too bad. You ever, you ever feel that way or, or have seasons where you just kind of feel that way? Here's the point. It's simply not true. You, what it probably means is that you may be disappointed in yourself because you may have caved into a weakness or caved into a temptation or struggled with something and you lost the battle. Something didn't work out. You tried to control something and it blew up in your face. I mean, this may be all be true, but this is not the way that God looks at ourselves. It's not that, and here's the point, it's not that God overlooks our weaknesses. God is very aware of our weaknesses. God is very aware of the areas where we struggle. God is very aware of the areas where we fail. God is very aware of the areas of weakness that reside in our life. And we say, okay, that's great. What's the point? Because God wants to show his perfect strength through your weakness. That's why he's not bothered by them. That's why he's not afraid of them. That's why he's not disappointed in them. In fact, he wants to use them to show you just how strong he is and just how strong he can be in your life. Amen? With God, there aren't winners and losers. So you're not a loser in Christ ever. There's only winners and learners. Amen? My scripture today is just one scripture, but it's a very important one. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'll give you the context in a moment here, but this scripture on its own, this is one of the few scriptures you can preach just the verse, and the verse says it all. The context is important, but this one verse really says it all, and it says this. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's say this together. There, come on, say it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? If you flip over your discussion sheet, we're going to go ahead and start filling that out. I just got four points that I draw from this verse, and hopefully they will be not only very encouraging for you this morning, but really plant a deep seed. First one is this. God is patiently sympathetic with our struggles and fails. God is patiently sympathetic. You may be struggling, you may have weakness, you may be failing, and the lie is that God is somehow disappointed with you over it. God is not your football coach. God was not your academic teacher. God is not your boss. God is not the person that we often find on earth that is driving you. You just got to do better. You just got to do better. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, what's wrong with you? Oh, why can't you do that? Shame on you. You know, God is not that person. God is patiently sympathetic with the fact that all of us have strengths and weaknesses. And like I said, in those weaknesses, God wants to show himself strong. Tom, that might be where you end, but it's where I begin. Watch what I can do in your life, even though this is a weakness for you. To understand Romans 8.1, and this is where the context comes into play, you really got to read the previous chapter, particularly Romans 7, 14 to 25. To spare you the time, I won't read every verse, but I'll kind of give you a synopsis. Paul essentially says this. In my mind, I want to please God, but there is something in me that causes me to do the opposite. Over and over again, Paul says this, the thing which I want to do, I do not do, and the thing which I hate, that I do. You ever feel like that? The thing that I do not want to do, that I end up doing, and the thing I hate, I, I end up doing. I don't do the things I want to do. He's talking about this warfare, this battle of the mind that begins to go on. It's kind of like when we wake up in the morning and we say, Lord, I know I've been struggling lately, but this day is going to be your day. This day, and we kind of set a goal. God, we're going to accomplish a certain number of things, and I know that these things are going to be pleasing to you. Well, as we go through the day, we don't do number one, we kind of half do number two. We skip entirely number three. We get most of four done, and we don't even attempt number five. And we go to bed going, you know what, God? I couldn't even do the five things I wanted to do for you today. What kind of person am I? What kind of follower of God am I that I can't even write out a five-point goal and accomplish it in one given day? It's easy to twist that around and say, I must be such a disappointment. But the fact of the matter is God may look at that and say, you had five things, but I really was just focusing on number four. And I'm glad you got most of that because that's what I was doing in your heart today. You know what I'm saying? God is patiently working with us in our struggles. Sometimes we'll say, Lord, I am not going to lose my temper today. And we lose it by 9 a.m. <laughs> Lord, help me to, to, to not be so critical but by 10.30, there we are, slicing and dicing away at somebody, you know? Lord, that's it. I am not going to gossip today. 
but by 1.30 p.m., we are hoping that the people we gossiped about hadn't heard so that they know that we were talking about them behind our back. All the time we have these things. The very thing that we said we were going to do, we didn't do. And the thing we said we'd never do, we do. Some of us have lived that experience this week. Some of us, this is our experience in life. And this is part of what it means to fight the good fight because there is a fight within us inside of us there is this holy spirit that is just drawing us upward to god and god is good and and, and, and as we sing worship we feel the holy spirit just flowing out of us but then there's also this old piece of us called the flesh that is dragging us down into our temptations and our appetites and our unhealthy feelings what is God saying with Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you start to feel condemned, when you start to feel disappointed, when the enemy is in your mind going, what kind of pastor are you? What kind of Christian are you? Oh, my goodness, you're so terrible. You have every right to say, be quiet. Because a judge greater than you has said, I am not condemned. And if a judge greater than you has said, I am not condemned, I do not need to listen to anything you have to say. Right? You see it in the movies all the time. Somebody's talking to somebody, and they say, I'm not going to talk to you. I want to talk to the leader. Because it's the leader that has the authority. The enemy doesn't have the authority. God has the authority. And the authority has said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that in all of your problems, there is no condemnation. In all of your struggles, there is no condemnation. In all of your failures, there is no condemnation. In your comings and goings in life, there is no condemnation. It means this, that God does not reject you, God does not punish you, or God does not feel any different toward you before the failure or after the failure. Now, the enemy will always try to convince you of the opposite. God loved you before, but man... God, you did this, and God's really struggling with you now. That's not God's voice. That's the enemy's voice. That's the world's voice. That's a false religion's voice, but that's not God's voice. Paul is saying, oh, well, I mean, is Paul saying that there is therefore now no failure for those who are in Christ Jesus? No. Sometimes we do fail. In fact, sometimes God uses our failures to grow us. Is Paul saying that there is therefore now no struggle for those in Christ Jesus? Nope. Struggle all the time. We live in a planet that's at war. I don't mean our wars. I mean the war, the invisible war that's going on all around us between God and the enemy, good and evil. Is, is Paul saying that there is therefore now no stumbling for those in Christ Jesus? No. To your dying breath, you will have those stumbles. What he is saying is, there's no punishment. There's no penal servitude. There's no condemnation. There's no fear of the wrath for the follower of Jesus Christ, even when we do fail, struggle, or stumble. Doesn't mean God won't discipline us from time to time. But God disciplines out of his love, not out of condemnation. Does that make sense?
That's where we say yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Point number two. This is the side one, but I want to throw it in there because it's something that I got out of this. Point number two. Do not use shame as a tool of manipulation or coercion. Particularly if you have, if you are a boss or if you are a parent or if you uh, are in a position of influence over another person, be very careful how you use shame. If you try to shame somebody into submission, if you try to shame somebody into change, if you try to shame somebody into doing what you want them to do, you are employing a tactic that even God doesn't use. God doesn't use it because it doesn't work long term. It may work in the moment. True change comes through love and mercy and grace, not shame and fear. Now, the devil does it all the time, but the devil doesn't do what works. The devil wants you to feel like you're irredeemable. The devil wants you to feel like you're beyond God's mercy. The devil wants you to feel like you're unfixable. And why do we shame people? Because most likely somewhere in our past, we were shamed. And so we just continue the cycle. Well, they did that to me, so now I'm going to do that to them. That's how my mother and father handled me, so that's not how I'm going to handle it. Well, that's what my boss did to me, so that's not what I'm going to do to you. Shame is, it's like a child that keeps reproducing in us over and over and over. And at some point, it has to be cut off and stop dead in its tracks. And I hope this morning, when you go home and realize, wait a minute, no condemnation means God is never going to shame me again, then you know what? I am not going to shame others. Now you may say, well, I, does that mean I shouldn't feel bad when I blow? Of course you're going to feel bad when you blow it. But the motivation is different. The motivation isn't reacting to shame and fear. The motivation is, God, I blew it, and you still love me. You're still with me. Man, I want to change my heart. I want to repent of my sin because that loving God is a God worth following and repenting for. Rather than the God who would shame you and stick your nose down the ground and rub your face in the mud. That's the enemy. That's the world. This is God. Choice is ours. Which one are you going to choose? I've never seen shaming work in a healthy manner because it makes you feel predestined to fail predestined for hell can make you feel like garbage and then you begin to identify as spiritual garbage and here's what happens after a while and i see this in youth ministry all the time after a while you get so tired of feeling like garbage you get mad at god because he feels you feel like he's the one shaming you just like you get mad at a parent who always shames you. You start to get mad at God. You start to get mad at wherever the shame is coming from. Even if the shame is deserved, you begin to get mad at it. You begin to dig down. It begins to run deep, and you begin to try to resist it. And pretty soon, the fruit of that shaming is this. Walk away. Walk away from God. Walk away from your family. Walk away from wherever that shame is coming from. That's how we get God to leave us alone, right? We find some belief or some religion that lets us do what we want. And in time, our conscience is so altered that we shut our minds off to the loving and graceful voice of God. 
the voice is always there. And for anyone who is sensitive to the shame of their sin, God is saying this. It's not me who's shaming you. You are blaming me, but it's not me. All of the punishment for everything you've ever done, I put it on my son on the cross. It is not me shaming you. It is either you shaming yourself, it is someone in this world who is shaming you, it may be the devil himself who is shaming you, but it is not me, and you are building this case against me, and you are going to die, and we're going to come face to face, I'm going to tell you it was never me. And you're going to feel like a sucker, living all those life, fighting and resisting when it was never me in the first place. He's not the God we think he is. He's far better. Point number three. This is one that will really rack your brain. God already knows everything you've done, everything you are doing, and everything you are going to do. You ever think about that? God already knows everything you've done, everything you're doing, and everything you have yet to do. In spite of that, God still loves you anyway. Often think about that. Your biggest sins may be in the future. See, we look at life linearly. There's where I am now and there's what I've done. Whatever's come next hasn't happened yet, so it's not real. But to God, he sees the end from the beginning. He sees the entirety, our, our, all, all of, our whole broken record of life. God sees the entire thing. And he has basically said, there is nothing you can do that's going to scare me away from you. Nothing you can do that will bring you so low that I will still not be there to pick you up when you fall. God knows what you've done, what we've done. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we have yet to do. And he has still said, I do not condemn you. I love you. I paid for you. I made you. You're mine. Amen. And then finally, number four. And this is, this is what I get from this verse. If you don't get it, you can throw this out if you want. But this is what I get. You grow first by believing better, not by behaving better. I don't mean to say that behavior isn't important. Sometimes we so focus on modifying behavior that we don't realize it's what we believe about God and understanding his kindness that truly leads us to repentance. Christian growth In other words, doesn't happen first simply by behaving better, but by believing better. Believing in bigger, deeper, and brighter ways of who Christ is to us. How the Holy Spirit is inside of us and how deep the Father's love is for us. In fact, our primary problem today is not really behavior, but beliefs. Behavior God can deal with. I've seen it. If you were to ask me, Tom, who would it be easier to convert? 
someone who believes in a false religion or a prostitute off the streets. Hands down a prostitute off the streets. They know they need God. They often come running and they can't wait to get out of it. And once they receive Jesus, all that behavior that they had in their life, it melts away like a paper-thin facade. But when you have someone that's in a deep belief in a false religion, they can be like pulling teeth to peel the scales off their eyes so that they can see the truth of the gospel. So who are you going to believe? The enemy, the world, the false teachers, or God? For the enemy, the world, and the false teachers condemn us day and night, whispering in our ear, condemned, condemned. You must do us and do our thing in order to not be condemned. And God says, my son died for you. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. Who you believe is, well, you'll have to make up your own mind. Nobody can make it up for you. And you can't make it up for someone else. But the point is, believe better. Believe better. I walked away this week going, you know what? My behavior is, is, I want to say not all that bad because we all got sin in our lives, but, I mean, but my behavior is quite boring and normal for a person in this day and age. But my belief could use some work. I need to believe better about certain things. I need to believe better about healing. I need to believe better about selling. I know there's holes and there's gaps there that I need the word of God to fill. Believe better. And you'll be amazed at how the behavior follows in suit. Some Christians go through life with a heavy load of guilt, not just because they struggle, but in their struggles they feel condemned by God. They feel like God hates them. He doesn't. His thoughts toward us are always thoughts of love. The Bible attests to this. In fact, even when he must discipline us, even when he must discipline us severely, he does it for our own good. If he condemned sin and death by his death on the cross, then God will never, ever condemn you. There's a story about a young boy. It's a 19th century story by a young boy named Tom. You can imagine why I was drawn to the story. It already has a cool name. And he built, uh, in, the, in the 19th century and early 20th century, in fact, even when I was a kid, I, I think we did this, he built a small toy boat to float uh, on a lake or a river. You know, it was back in the days where they, they built little model boats. And th- that boat was held, to get, uh, held by a string, and you'd let the string out, and the boat would go, and you'd see the boat kind of riding the w- river waves. So Tom had meticulously built this boat, and he pushed it out, And all of a sudden, the river had a gust and a little bit of current came through. And and he lost the string, and the boat started floating down the river. So he's running for it. He's running. This is the boat that he made. This is the boat that he spent weeks meticulously gluing each wooden piece and gluing the bridge and the aft deck. and He got him painting it and all that. He spent so much time on this boat. And now, on its maiden voyage, he lost the string, and it's flowing down the river. And he couldn't find it. Searched the rest of the day and into the night. And finally said, well, it's a river. (laughs) It's going to end up somewhere miles away. My boat is gone. He came back feeling very sad. He had lost his boat. 
then a few weeks later, he was in a local store. And he saw a boat. And he looked and he looked. He goes, wait a minute. That's my boat. That's the boat I built. Oh, my goodness. And he went up to the store owner and said, hey, 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 this is the boat that I built. Can I have my boat back? And you know what the store owner said? No. You can't have your boat back. He said, but that's my boat. He says, well, somebody else brought it in here a few days ago, and they pawned it off to me. So you, if you want the boat, it'll cost you a dollar. That's how you know it's from the 19th century. So the boy goes home, gets together all of his coins, and he finds that he has a little more than a dollar. So he comes back, and the boy buys the boat that he made and lost back for a dollar. And as he was walking out of the store, he looked at the boat. You know what he said? He said, boat, now you are twice mine. For once I made you, and then I bought you. I hope you get it. Because God was the one who made you. But we got lost. And then God not only made us, but he bought us. We are twice his. When God looks down at you and says, you are twice mine. I don't want to condemn you. I never will condemn you. I love you. In all your struggles, failures, and problems, I will be there. Amen? This morning, I'd like to I'd like to urge you with all my heart, with every fiber of my being, that if you are not sure where you stand with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure where your decision really lies, this morning I invite you to run to Jesus and embrace the cross. If you're outside of Christ, then come by faith. Believing, believing that what you heard today was true. Believing that only through Jesus do we come to the Father and go to heaven. And when you come, you will discover the most liberating truth in the world. That in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. So this morning, in our gathering here, I'd like to make an old-fashioned altar call, an old-fashioned call to decision. I think many people end in hell because they spend their lives thinking about it, but at no point do they actually decide to do it. Let this morning be that point of decision, that this is your day, this is your time to be liberated from condemnation, and to enter into salvation. There's nothing you have to do other than believe it and receive it. So this morning, whether it's to rededicate your life because you were with Jesus and you found yourself walking away a little bit, or for the very first time, you'd like to say, you know what? I want to receive the free gift of grace, the free gift of God, and the free gift of Jesus. 
whether it's rededicating or for the first time, just go ahead and stand to your feet right now. Stand to your feet. I know it's embarrassing. I get it. I don't know if I'd want to do it either. But I know this. The bolder you are to come, the bolder you'll be to stay. So if it's truly nobody here, then I appreciate that you humored me for the last 40 minutes. Oh, amen. We do got one. Anybody else? No condemnation. Amen. I'm already standing. If I wasn't, I would be standing. Because I know I need to believe better. I've allowed some atrophy to come into my faith. And I need to let that go. Amen. Amen. Just another minute here. You got to believe that God is watching you just as much as anybody else is. Let's say this together. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you that there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I admit I need you, and I commit to believe better, to believe that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Forgive me of my sins, I ask, and fill me with the Holy Spirit afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a shout of praise.